so let's get started. Okay. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of Drunk and Cultured. I'm joined today by one of my favorite people ever, my cousin Caitlin. Hi. Hi. So since we're doing this remotely, I planned our topics today based on what we're drinking and what I was able to find like easily near you um, and what I know that we can get here, which is the Gerard Bertrand Cotes de Roses Rosé. So mm-hmm. what do you think? I, so this is the first time I've had this wine and upon first drinking it, I almost felt like I was drinking a white, but I find it very drinkable and it has a, has like an aftertaste that's a little like almost bitter, like grapefruit, which is one of my favorite flavors ever. Yeah. I am not a sweet wine drinker. I would have been like a total plebe back in the day because Mm. I guess the sweeter the wine, the wealthier mm-hmm. the person, or well, I guess more expensive. And yeah. butter was a peasant thing, like butter and dry, bitter <laughs> wines. That's my thing. So I would have been able to get by on the cheap. But yeah, I agree. In terms of rose, it's hard sometimes to find something that's not super sweet. Or mm-hmm. even like some of them are really tart where that kind of green yeah. apple taste is nice, but sometimes it's just a little bit, a little too much. Mm-hmm. I love this wine in warm weather with a bunch of ice in it, which is how I feel like rosé should be consumed because that's how I recall drinking it whenever I've been in <laughs> France, but it's always mm. so hot. I feel like they come out with a little bag the ice bag with your rosé I love it is that normal in France in your experience to have for do you see the French women drinking it with ice well I mean I feel like everywhere in the south of France that I've been is so heavily tourist area like Mm -hmm. I haven't been to this area where this wine is the it's called Narbonne Mm -hmm. and it's near Spain but you know, in Nice, it's so, so touristy. So anywhere that I really would have been, they're putting ice in their wines. And, Mm -hmm. but even like when it was brought to the table, they would bring it, they'd bring your glass with ice in it. So, or a separate glass with ice on the side. Mm -hmm. And that's really where I kind of drank rosé for the first time. I wasn't a big wine I only would drink red wines Mm because white wines would give me heartburn or gave me heartburn one time. White (laughs) wine gave me heartburn one time. And then I was like, absolutely not. It's all bad. You're done. Yeah. 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 And I find it difficult to find a white wine that I like. So I pretty much stayed away from everything. Yeah. I think that's fair. I find my experience with a lot of white wines that they're either, like you said, too fruity or too sweet or too acidic yeah so if I feel like I'm drinking like a hard liquor and I don't want that experience then I'll just go for a red it seems easier yeah so one of the reasons why I love this wine is it's exactly what I want when I'm in the mood for rosé light flavorful it it doesn't like taste immediately watered down it holds it flavor holds its flavor when you put ice in it And it's really easy to find. You were able to find it out east Mm -hmm. in Canada. We have it out west. I know they sell it in the U.S. 
and Mexico, or at least in Cabo, like you can get it at the Walmart in Cabo. Um, (laughs) And it's really reasonably priced. So for us here, I think it's like 20, 20 bucks a bottle, $23 a bottle, maybe. Yeah, I was honestly shocked at the price of it, especially because it's so beautiful the the wine bottle itself is like it just looks like an expensive wine yeah um I, I'm also one of the I, I'm a person that doesn't really know a ton about wine so sometimes I find myself leaning towards how the bottle looks but yeah over here I think it was about 17 or 18 dollars in Quebec well if looks are what you go for Gerard Bertrand has got it with his <laughs> wines because he obviously this bottle it's unique the glass cork that's like a slightly rose pink color is a beautiful touch and then having the bottom of the bottle be cast as a rose the whole drinking experience of it is beautiful beautiful on the table when you're having like a ladies brunch or something like that like it's just Mm -hmm. it's yeah. And then another wine that they actually produce with John Bon Jovi and his son, Jesse, is called Hampton Water. And I sent you a picture of it. It The label of it is a black and white woman diving. And it looks like the bottom of the bottle is the top of maybe like a building in New York or something like that. That's what that kind of reminds me of, like almost like windows. Yeah. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It almost reminds me of like water droplets. It's like as you see her diving into the water. Oh, that would make a lot more sense <laughs> than the diving into the top of a building. And it has the same glass top. And just a side note, I didn't realize before this that John Bon Jovi's last name is Bon Bon Jovi, mm-hmm. all one word, not yeah. like Bon space Jovi, like good it's Jovi. Up- it's. <laughs> The uh, the surprising thing about me is that I actually knew that, and <laughs> I actually know probably a lot more about John Bon Jovi than the average person. So, oh, but I didn't know that he was making a wine that. connoisseur now. Yes, I think his that. son apparently like spearheaded the whole project, which seems like it's actually the only thing his son does. It says he's a wine entrepreneur. The idea of this bottle of wine is that it's supposed to embody the essence of the relaxed lifestyle of the Hamptons or whatever. Mm -hmm. Both the Cote de Roses and the Hampton water, they seem to be pretty consistently rated around like 89 to 90 points, which you'll see at the liquor store. So if you don't know what to get and you're kind of like in the region, you can look for the point system. It doesn't really mean that much I mean just essentially that people reviewing wine rate it highly but what you like and what they like could be totally different I think a white chardonnay like a chardonnay a white chardonnay of course the chardonnay from California is called Rombauer it kind of tastes and smells like a little bit well I don't know what cat pee tastes like but to me it smells like cat pee I cannot drink it I put the glass to my mouth and the nose on it is like pure ammonia and that's a very highly rated wine that doesn't mean much what I like to do if I'm kind of in the mood for something and luckily the internet exists now but a lot of liquor stores sometimes will have the free food and wine magazines and stuff like that and they'll have little short little reviews in them that'll 
give you flavor notes of certain wines that they're highlighting, which sometimes are on sale. So that's like a good tip for if you're doing a pairing. But yeah, for a bottle that's, you know, priced under $25 to be rated so highly is, it's pretty, it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. The winery that this Cote de Roses is from is a Gerard Bertrand winery. And I learned a lot about Gerard Bertrand. And I'm just going to kind of go into a little deep dive on him because I'm so impressed. I did not expect to, like, I kind of... I knew that the Gerard Bertrand like label produced a lot of different wines. I've seen it when I've been in Europe. I kind of thought it was more almost like export wines. Like I've seen more Gerard Bertrand wines in New York and in like London than (laughs) when at least noticing them when I was in Europe. But the last time I was in France was a long time ago. So that's also hard to say but he's a third generation winemaker. So it's not like he was just like some rich guy who decided to get into making wine. And prior to taking over the family estate after his dad's accidental death, it was a car accident, I think. He was a professional rugby player for rugby club Narbonne, which is French league rugby. Wow. Yeah. And for four years, no, longer than four years, seven years, he did both. He's like, oh, my dad died. I got to go help the family with our really successful wine label. But also I still want to, he was a flanker, which is one of the more rough and tumble kind of positions. And he did both. Pretty impressive. It's very impressive. And I love it because you don't think about those two things going together. No. And he retired from playing, but became the president of the rugby club. So he still even like had his hand in both things for years after he stopped playing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he's also all about like moving into a more environmentally friendly and sustainable, sustainable winemaking process. He harvested his first grapes when he was only 10 years old with his dad. Obviously, he wasn't just like out there figuring it out. (laughs) but learned for 12 years alongside his dad before he passed away. And his dad was a pretty well-known winemaker in the region. So his dad's name was Paul. And no, sorry, his dad was George. And his grandfather was Paul. Mm-hmm. Paul planted the family's first vines in the Corbières in 1920. I think I'm going to butcher so many French words and names I'm kind of happy that Amanda can't hear me right now like I know you've lived in Montreal for a long time and you're not there right now but it's an it, I try it's not good I understand do the best you can like a decent amount like I can translate a fair amount of French but it just yeah. sounds so bad coming out of my mouth it's yeah but I, I think like all French people would appreciate you trying, you know, as, as long as you're trying to pronounce their words. I just, it's all good. Yeah, I feel very, I feel very slow. Mm-hmm. His father, his grandfather, and now his children, Emma and Matthias, are learning the trade from their dad. So I love that. Just keeping mm-hmm. it in the family. I spent a really long time on their website, actually. They have 16 different estates all throughout this it's called the languedoc roussillon region Mm. just kind of like a strip between toulouse 
France and the Mediterranean. I sent you a couple of pictures uh, just of a few of their wineries. So the first one is called Chateau de Villemajou. I've just been staring at the picture you sent of Gerard this whole time. Oh yeah, I kind of glazed over that. He doesn't he look like basically exactly what you would expect. Like he has like Carly Claus's eyebrows and like <laughs> a, but like a George Clooney kind of I don't know hair slash demeanor, but he's very intense. The open button shirt, I think, also really adds to that George Clooney exactly. salt and pepper kind of hot dad look yeah and then the like kind of he's doing this like little open mouth smirk a bit and yeah I wonder if this is how he always looks or if this was like guided by a photographer because if that's the case it's really it's really a look it was essentially the best quality picture I could steal for you so you knew what I was talking about and didn't have to keep trying to go through stuff and screen share yeah the remote sharing thing was hard I was like what do I do and then I'm making a powerpoint but I'm making a powerpoint and I'm like I totally feel like I'm making a shitty art history project these are your slides for your presentation (laughs) (laughs) definitely I see it Chateau de Villa Majou this was I believe their fat like the family's original vineyard he mm-hmm. says, uh, Gerard Bertrand says of this vineyard that the land of Villemajou lulls my childhood memories. I understood the emotional dimension that a wine grower can feel for his vineyard. Villemajou is the yardstick, the barometer of our wines. I love this wine as an offering that my father gave me, a link between past, present, and future. And I don't know if you can see it, but I actually have all paint on my arms, but my hair, <laughs> the hair on my arms is standing up. I just Mm -hmm. love that so much that this is his legacy, his dad's legacy. You know, he's kind of carrying on the memories that he has with his family here. So Mm -hmm. like I, I tugged on the heartstrings. Definitely. And I think that's something that I love about wine making in general, especially when we think about the old world versus the new world. It's just the fact that wine is something that is also so time-based and it's about not only the practice of creating it but I think for me it's just about what's occurring in the world at the time and um I don't know I think the whole process of of learning from family and keeping that within in your I mean we're speaking as family members too right keeping things within your your kind of unit is so special yeah I don't know, some of my, well, I learned about wine from our family because Mm -hmm. our family loves wine. Both sides of my family love wine. Yeah. Yeah. So I I definitely love that they have, they've kept it in the family and he's, he's expanded it, but never kind of strayed from that, the family name. So Mm -hmm. this estate, they grow old vine, Grenache, Syrah, and Morvedre, Morvedre grape. I've never heard of that one. It pretty much looked like most mm-hmm. of the wines that they were showing from this vineyard were reds. And then the next one that I included, I w- decided not to kind of talk about every single one because I pretty much could have just copy and pasted their whole website. Like I, it, it's really <laughs> interesting and it's total because we can't travel right now. Mm-hmm. It's like total vacation 
goals. Oh, like what a beautiful place. And there's just him. He's got all of these vineyards in such a small area, like renting a car and driving from here to here would only take so long. So definitely dream vacation planning, kind of. Definitely our future. (laughs) Yeah. And I love this area in a little bit. I'll kind of talk about where it is, but I've been on the Spain section of this coast and it's just awesome. So this castly looking one is Domaine de la Estangere. It is beautiful. And it was founded in 1292. Wow. Which is old. Very old. It produced wines for the clergy of Carcassonne, which is the, ta- the city or town that it is, and the surroundings. Mm-hmm. And Carcassonne was a Roman city way back in the day and it's now people visit it for like the city on the hill Mm. situation so it was the south fortress at the time and they like Gerard Bertrand acquired it only in 2017 so it's one of his more recent ones the soils this like sounds like it would be kind of my thing because like I love a really sedimenty pinot and like a Mm. rich dark like cab sauve so the soils are a mix of clay and limestone and the climate because the Pyrenees mountains are in the south and then the black mountain is in the north and they're kind of in between this basin but then they also get a lot of the wind that still comes up from the coast so it's like a really windy dry cooler than a lot of this southern French region so it's it's a a different grape varietal than you'll get mm. from anywhere else. So yeah, Cab Sauv, Merlot, any of those kind of reds, they grow mm. there. And I couldn't find which vineyard the Cote de Roses is from. I even tried to ask them, but nobody got back to me. Mm. They don't even advertise it on their website. So that makes me think that it's maybe not sold at the wineries because I know that that was a thing when I was planning some of the tours in Spain was that they wouldn't show the ones that they didn't sell there. So that, I don't know. So unfortunately I don't know where, but if anyone from Gerard Bertrand wants to let me know, hit me up. We would like to know. I want to go. Okay. (laughs) I would love to go. I want to visit. Narbonne looks absolutely beautiful. And I definitely encourage anybody who is interested. I did include a couple more pictures for Caitlin just because they're so pretty. Take a look at the website. They don't show all 16 of the of the estates, but they show quite a few and they're beautiful and they each have their own story. They grow different kinds of grapes and they use different practices. So I think that that's, that's really cool, unique about them. I mean, not a lot of wine labels have 16 estates on their own. That's like pretty impressive. Yeah, and visually they all look quite different too. Totally different. Which is really fascinating. One of them, so the it's called Chateau des Carants. So like the very last picture that I sent you. Mm-hmm. That one was like the house of an archbishop, the archbishop of Carcassonne or whatever lived there. Yeah, it almost looks like a when I first saw it, I thought monastery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It totally looks like that. And another cool thing about his wines, so they're made according to the principles of organic farming. They're free from all herbicides, GMOs, chemical fertilizers, 
and he takes his commitment to defend the environment one step further by implementing what's called biodynamic cultivation, which I had never heard about before. They take care of the vines and they harvest without exhausting it. So they'll use natural fertilizers such as horn dung, which I don't know, and (laughs) organic composts. I'm not much of a gardener. Horn dung could be a really popular fertilizer to use. I can't keep a basil plant alive. So I mean... (laughs) Could be literally anything. Like, yeah. yeah. Where where does the horn come from? I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. This type of wine growing also takes into account the influence of the planets and lunar calendar. So you gotta make sure it syncs up astrologically. Okay. So is that like based off of when they plant or when they when they plant and harvest? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's that was a new thing for me too. And biodynamic wine growers are given what's called the Demeter label to certify their compliance with the specifications. 53 countries actually participate in this designation. So I was surprised that I hadn't heard of it before. Because mm-hmm. you'd think that are like the Okanagan wineries, they'd be all about the Demeter label. Yeah, you'd think so. Know, maybe horn dung isn't something that we can get readily. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, maybe Gerard Bouchon is just more willing to go all out for his wine. He, I don't know. He could be just breaking, breaking barriers, starting it all. Yeah. Not all of their wines or wineries hold that designation, but their website states that by 2023, all of their vineyards are gonna will have completed the transition. And then just like mm-hmm. one more little thing about him. In 2012, he won the red winemaker of the year in the international wine challenge so Mm. he does more than just the rosés obviously a lot more as i mentioned the region is called the languedoc roussillon it's on the the coast of southern france bordering andorra and spain and it's near montpellier which is the region capital Mm -hmm. have you been to this area or near here i've never been here but it's kind of my next next area I would like to go to in France but similar to you I've I haven't been to France in a long time and I've edited the Strasbourg region so closer to Germany closer Alsace in that direction Alsace um and then just Paris a bunch of times so I feel like I'm missing out on huge chunks of of France well and it's also diverse I've been yeah just a two-hour drive is that east, southeast, into Spain, mm-hmm. Catechez, which is where Salvador Dali lived. So there's actually mm-hmm. like a really cool little park that you can kind of see right over the border from France where that E15 label is on your picture. There's like a horn mm-hmm. that sticks out. That's called Cap de Cruz. That's where Salvador Dali actually got a lot of his inspirations for his paintings. So if you were going to drive to Narbonne from Barcelona that would be like it'd be quicker than going from Paris you'd actually go through Mm -hmm. Figueres or you could go along the coast which I've done that drive and it's absolutely amazing it took a long time to go along the coast and then there were some places where all of a sudden it would just you'd be on a one-way street 
and you're like, am I going the right way? It's just like a tiny, or it'd be like a tiny little alley. And you're like, is this a pedestrian only? Am I driving down the wrong thing? Yeah. But that's, yeah, that's on my list also. The name like Languedoc Roussillon dissolved in 2016. It joined with the Midi Pyrenees region to come to become Occitanie, like the Lux, look, I don't know, the hand cream. Lusitan, yeah. That. That one. And prior to the 20th century, this region spoke the language Occitan and Catalan, which is still spoken in some parts of Spain, like Catalonia, where Barcelona is, all the way up the coast. And that was one thing I remembered, actually, when we were in that catechist region where we'd go into a store and the majority of the people actually spoke French. A lot of them didn't speak mm. Spanish or it would be a mix. Like I wouldn't know when I'd go into a store, if I would have to say, I'd be like, hola, bonjour. <laughs> no. I don't know what language I'm supposed to speak here. Yeah. I find the situation so tough because my Spanish is quite weak, but my but Spanish is similar enough to French that my like my gut feeling is always to speak French but people just don't understand me so I'll start speaking French and they're speaking Spanish and I can't think of any Spanish words in those moments it's so hard to switch yeah it is hard and even so Spanish would be probably my dominant of the I don't I wouldn't even say I speak a second language but like of the three second languages that I know words which would be Spanish, Italian, mm -hmm. and French. Spanish is probably my best. And in Italy, I found yes. that the hardest because so many words are so close in Italy. And mm -hmm. I would just start speaking Spanish. And I'm like, oh, it's grazie, not gracias, or whatever. Rarely that mistake. Yeah. Things like that, where it's like, at least we're trying, but also do I seem really ignorant? <laughs> Yeah, and then everyone's like, just yeah. speak English. <laughs> no, why do they even bother? <laughs> In 2004, the government of Catalonia did like a little census of this area, and it showed that 65% of adults over 15 years old in this region could understand Catalan, and 37 could speak it. So it's not like a dead language like the Occitan is. And it looks like Occitan yeah. was actually... I pretty much in art history class, I was never into the medieval stuff really other than architecture, but the Byzantinian art era was mm -hmm. not my thing. Yeah. I don't know. Learning about the books with the drawings in them. <laughs> like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's tough because I think during that time, everything looks the same and everything's like a triptych. Yeah. You know, of Jesus. Yeah. Or maybe I'm not even well no like the, enough, the Byzantinian but... ones where it would be like on the gold plated or not plated but like the painted gold wooden triptychs with I'm thinking like it wasn't seem way or whatever his Madonna and Child was the one Byzantine yeah. one yeah and even before them how there's a lot of the writings that look like Celtic knots <laughs> yes lots of Celtic knots so that poetry that was I guess displayed in that kind of Celtic not looking book style mm -hmm. <laughs> that was the thing that was their art because I tried really hard I'm like right. I'm gonna find an artist that 
hangs out in this region, but not really unless you're into old timey poetry, which mm -hmm. uh, it's, I don't know, not my thing. This region is into. absolutely yeah. covered in vineyards, 740,300 acres of vineyards. So they got wine three times the amount yeah. of vineyards as what's in Bordeaux, which like, I'm pretty sure wow. Bordeaux basically is only known for being vineyards mm -hmm. and the grapevines are said to have existed in this region since the pliocene period so i looked that up because that's old it's before people mm -hmm. for sure yeah never heard of that term so <laughs> definitely before anything yeah I'd ever learned and about. honestly old old timey years I also don't really understand how the ADBC, but then there's like everything before, and then they changed it to like before dated era. And I, yeah. I just, well, I don't know. I didn't understand. It's old. It's a lot. They're really old grapes there. Yeah. I guess not old grapes, but the region was the largest contributor to what was called the wine lake, which sounds like fun, right? Yeah. Apparently not. <laughs> From 2005 to 2007, there was a surplus of wine produced by the EU and they were not very happy about it because a whole lot of wine was wasted and it kind of diminished the price and the exclusivity of getting these European wines. In 2007, European countries were producing 1.7 billion, like B, billion more bottles of wine than they were selling i can't even imagine that it's just it's sad to think about all of that wine going to waste it's also like you never think about wine going to waste because it ages well yeah right? some if you have the storage if you can if you have the store storage, it properly yeah. and it's like out in the hot french sun it becomes a wine lake yeah or vinegar i guess hundreds of millions of bottles of wine were turned into industrial alcohol and they called this emergency distillation. So they used it, but like still sad. Sad though. It's <laughs> yeah. sad. It's like all the hard work that we're talking about going into this wine and like the delicate process of it. And then it turns into vinegar. <laughs> well, and I think of how sad I am when I spill a good yeah. wine. Imagine 2005 to 2007, I wasn't really drinking wine yet. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I didn't know mm -hmm. about wine yet. I want those. I want those wines. Yeah. I would have enjoyed that wine. <laughs> yeah. Even if once it was bad, I probably would have still drank it at that age. <laughs> Especially at that age. Yeah. <laughs> Made some sangria out of exactly. it. Exactly. These surpluses aren't actually that uncommon and or weren't, I guess, now with more regulations, but they always have like a name like lake. So if it's a liquid surplus, it's a lake. Or if it's a solid surplus, it's a mountain. So there was a milk lake and a butter mountain. And this one's the grossest, beef mountain. <laughs> and I didn't really look into the history of those. I just noted them because, yeah. Yeah, the beef one is like, we don't need to get into that because I'm just thinking about the cows and we don't know. Yeah like sad and gross but I the, mean maybe maybe it was like a foot and mouth disease hoof and mouth disease mad cow thing maybe anyway so back to the region the major communities in this region are the Alez, Bezier, La Palme, Carcassonne, Montpellier, 
Narbonne, Nimes, which I've heard a lot about Nimes, all good things, Perpignan, and Set. I really am keeping these lists in here. So if anybody French is listening, a little bit of comedic, <laughs> a little bit of humor in how poorly I'm probably probably pronouncing anything because I can't even speak English properly right now. I chose Narbonne because it's close to the beach. It looked pretty in pictures and pretty rich history, this region. So it's about an eight and a half hour drive from Paris, which unless you had other stops you wanted to make along the way, and there are many places that would be interesting that you could, I don't know why that would be your choice. Because also, if you're from North America and you're driving in Europe, be prepared for a lot of confusion. Make sure you like your co-pilot and have good communication with your co-pilot. Because I've really only ever done it with my mom and there's a lot of arguing that happens. So that's just a fun note. I think it's just, um, it's like everything that you're used to about driving in North America. It's like, imagine everything, but slightly different. Yeah. And then sometimes you'll be able to understand, but sometimes you'll be driving and you're like, oh, where I want to go isn't on that sign am I still going the right way and then all of a sudden you're like am I off the highway and there's a roundabout here which way do I go or the toll system where you take a ticket but you have to keep that ticket and then put it back in at a later toll that that's something that I don't know that I've ever had to do in North America but I've always had easy pass yeah anywhere I've driven where there's been yeah it's a little bit of a trip I remember driving well my my father was driving in Italy and we were all, all four of us in the car together. And there was, it was just the, the intersection in Florence just had, it was like five lanes merging into other lanes. And there was like, no way it seemed like anything anyone had ever merged into before. Just chaos. <laughs> driving in Florence must've been a nightmare too, because people no. do not give a fuck. I mean, Rome is like that too, but they will not get out of the way. You're just on the street and all of a sudden there's a horde of people walking in front of you. And it's like being on an old country road where you just kind of have to wait for the cows to disperse. 100%, right? So it's like, you know, the combination <laughs> of like aggressive drivers, like people who are just like walking around nonchalantly. And then you have these like people who are used to like strict regulations like us in North America. And then it's like, nobody is following any of that. <laughs> tourists trying to roll their suitcases down the cobblestone rolling over and getting caught walking from the train station train I would say is probably unless again you I mean a road trip is fantastic if you have the ability and the means to do so but I love taking the train Mm -hmm. in Europe so it's only six hours by train which is still long from Paris. The shortest I was able to find from Paris was four and a half hours, but it seems like average is six and four and a half hours from Barcelona too. Mm. When it comes to taking trains in Europe, I know everyone's different. Everyone's got their budgets (laughs) and you've got to make things work, but I'm a big proponent of paying a little bit extra if it means I can take a direct route. Yes. And also a ticket where you can choose your seat. Mm -hmm. I cannot do the festival seating thing. And even on planes, EasyJet is like that too. I know. I feel like Ryanair was like Mm -hmm. that where you just, it's a mad dash to get on the train or the plane. And you got to find a spot to put your luggage because as 
a North American, I had never traveled by train before I went to Europe. I had been on the subway Mm -hmm. or, you know, local transit, but I expected to check my luggage. (laughs) I didn't think I was going to have to carry the suitcase onto the train and then leave it basically in a doorway and then find a seat. So for me, that I'd rather spend the extra, you know, 10, 15 euros sometimes. I mean, sometimes it's a huge difference. And I think it depends on the train line or whatever carrier where you're going. But some of them for us, it wasn't even that much different in price. Mm -hmm. And in Italy, Italia Rail, they had the best option for me, which was a quiet train. (laughs) So it was like first class, but then also no noise. Yeah, like I feel like on those ones too, the quiet trains, it's like no one even speaks. Yeah. There's like no chit chat. There's no phone chat. It's like, I yeah, I think I accidentally got on one of those in London once, taking the train somewhere else in, in England. And I think I was talking to my friend or something and I just got the worst looks from the British people. I'll probably like, who is this foreigner talking on here? (laughs) Not okay. So we took the quiet train from Florence to Venice, which was fantastic. But then from Venice to Milan, we were just in regular first class and there was a family with two kids and they were just like yelling so loud. And I was like, okay, whatever. I mean, everybody's having their time. Awful. (laughs) And then another thing you have to worry about, of course, at the trains is like crowds or in certain places that you are gypsies, Mm -hmm. mostly in Italy. I don't think I remember. I I know in Spain, there was a lot of signs about there being thieves and pickpockets. Spain was the calmest train system I took. Italy was like madness. Amsterdam, I remember Mm -hmm. like people being up in arms about the train being two minutes late. Yeah, I think it was. Shipley I feel like that's how your dad told me to pronounce it it's it's spelled (laughs) Shipole but your dad told me it was Shipley and then I've always said it like that and I'll even correct people so if it's wrong I don't want to know because that's how it is that's what it is now yeah that's what we believe (laughs) I, I was raised by that man so I probably think of a lot of things that way (laughs) I would trust it though I your brother lived there I feel like your dad would know how to pronounce it but yeah I remember just trying to haul my big luggage up the steps and this man being so grumpy about the fact that I was taking so long and I'm 18 and my suitcase was basically the size of my body and he's Mm -hmm. like the train is already three minutes late hurry up and I'm like yo three minutes late is nothing literally nothing like the via rail train here when I was taking it a lot from Toronto to Montreal the last however many years I've lived here it's like often on average 30 minutes late how does anybody get anywhere on how you just have to plan to be everywhere an hour earlier than you need to be truly i don't know and i I don't know how because the the trains function so well in europe i don't know why we can't get it right here like we have the technology in the world yeah why does it have to exist this way but canada likes to blame everything on the weather so it's always weather outside there's always some kind (laughs) of weather. weather inclement weather So yeah, if you have it in your budget to pick a seat, do it because you don't want to spend six and a half plus hours or whatever on a train standing by your suitcase because you didn't want to spend the extra 15 euros or whatever it is. Yeah, definitely 
work the extra week or whatever, if you can, yeah. because it'll just really, it'll take a lot of the stress. I, I mean, for me, some people like that. Some people are okay with just getting there, how they get there. Yeah. I, I, it's a vacation. I want to relax. I would need an entire magnum of this coat de roses by the time I got to Narbonne, if I had to stand for six and a half hours. Like no one should have to stand for six and a half hours. No, I don't think that that's really a, as much of a problem on those. I'm sure in that time, there would have been somebody that got up that you could snake their seat. I don't think everybody would do the, but still just saying, treat yourself yeah. to, to a seat. You deserve it. You're in France or somewhere around yeah. there. So you deserve it. Narbonne is just off the coast, about 15 kilometers or nine miles from the Mediterranean. And it's linked to the Canal du Midi, which runs from Toulouse, which looks like Beauty and the Beast. It's mm. so cute. And it was originally named the Canal Royal en Languedoc in 1789 by the French revolutionaries. And the Aude River kind of intersects it. That was a major transport river way back in Caesar times. Like the Romans used that. Caesar time, yeah. Caesar time. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Back in the days of the Caesars. <laughs> so on this Canal du Midi, there are several aqueducts. The prettiest one that I was able to find was the Orb mm. Aqueduct. And it's near the closest to the town of Beziers. And I've never seen an aqueduct in real life, but... I, I mean, they these ones just kind of look like fancy bridges. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I I could be mistaking this, but I did a I did a bike trip with my family once, and it was along. It was like it wasn't along the coast; it was along some sort of like river, major waterway, and I'm pretty sure it was just flush with aqueducts. So that's like the thing to do in this region, apparently, is bike the aqueduct. Yes trails i guess so yeah i recall you guys actually going on that bike trip yeah it it wasn't in france the one thing i would warn people of if they're ever planning to do that specifically surrounding water is that you will get hit with many a bug oh yeah many a bug while you're biking because none of these pictures make the river look like it's moving that fast either so it there's probably a lot of those stagnant water bugs like mosquitoes and gnats and stuff yeah and they tend to not be the ones that bite you which is great but it's also like still in your face in your face and like yeah yuck unpleasant (laughs) that to me I know for a lot of people that I'll go on a bike ride on a vacation (laughs) maybe Eh. (laughs) maybe not that I mean I'm I I don't really go on bike rides in my spare time, but in Amsterdam, we definitely rented bikes and there was a bridge I wanted to see that we couldn't walk to. So we took bikes there. Yeah. That's not, that's not my idea of a relaxing vacation personally, but it seems like it's the thing to do for people. I can understand, I understand it. I'm not like, why would anybody want to do that? Like I get it, Mm -hmm. but I, I want to take a car or just sit and drink. <laughs> yeah essentially and for sure and I think there's like two different kinds of biking vacations too right they're the ones where you're like always in athletic gear and like carrying all your stuff on your back and then there's maybe the ones more like Amsterdam where you're wearing a dress and there's a bottle of wine strapped to your 
seat in your basket yeah you know yeah. it's a very different kind of experience so I can see I can see how you wouldn't be super down for the first one and I mean I think also for me it's about availability if I had more access to Europe mm-hmm. then I would probably be more open to doing something like that on vacation like I've done bike trips mm-hmm. I just I'm not there that often why for me spend my time biking even though it is a good way to experience countryside when there's so many things to see. Yeah, yeah I get it. But there are four more aqueducts on this canal. Mm-hmm. There's the Repudre mm-hmm. Aqueduct, which was the very first aqueduct built on the Canal de Midi, designed by Pierre-Paul Re- Requit to cross the river in 1675. Mm-hmm. He built three of them on this river so he was just like crisscrossing the river all the time between 1667 and 1681 it always blows my mind how quickly they were able to build things back in the day like even the coliseum this took like seven years or something like that they didn't have machines yeah what the hell how are you guys building stuff so fast (laughs) one of those things i don't know if this happens to you not to get too off topic but it's like when i think about egypt yeah (laughs) and it's like how did this happen and then it's like, okay, well, I guess they it's had like, nothing else to do, but we can't get anything done. It just weird. It, like, how are they building stuff so fast? Yeah, I mean, I guess they had nothing else to do, but like move these bricks and create bricks yeah. and then move them into this like perfect shape. When I was in El Salvador, I had the not pleasure of making a cinder block or several cinder blocks. That, it's not enjoyable and it takes a long time. And then they set them out and you have to wait for them to dry in the sun. I mean, this looks like it's a lot of stone. So those are, you know, prefab by the earth. But even still, some of those are their shapes. Mm-hmm. Like they definitely mm-hmm. were made. You have to cut the stone, right? <laughs> There's two more, the Orbiel and the Fresnel. They're both near Carcassonne, that where the Castle Vineyard is in the town with the walls, the Roman walled city. Mm there so the earliest known record of settlers mm-hmm. in the area of Narbonne were greek from oh words he- hecateus of malicious in the fifth century bc and it was established by gaul so i've got an old-timey map there for you yeah that is an old-timey map for sure in the time of caesar 118 bc in the time of caesar <laughs> multiple multiple caesars made their way <laughs> this area <laughs> back in this day gaul was pretty much most of france but then this narbo martius down at the bottom here that's where we were in provence and Narbo was located on the very first Roman road mm, okay. called the Via Domita. So this was the route that Caesar and co would use this route <laughs> to get from Italy to Spain. And the surviving members of Julius Caesar's Legio, Roman numeral X, so 10, mm-hmm. Dice, I guess it would have been Latin, I don't know, 10 in Latin, Equestris, so the 10th Mounted Legion. <laughs> were given land in that area so the people who like i guess initially settled there after the greeks were old equestrian legion members narbonne was the competitor to marseille which is somewhere i've always wanted to go mm-hmm. it's apparently or was anthony bourdain's number two favorite 
place in the world for food that is reason enough to go number one anything that's anthony bourdain's on like anthony bourdain's list of anything for food i am there yeah i really hold his recommendations to a high standard 100 percent. his number one place is san sebastian which i haven't been mm-hmm. in northern spain i have a couple friends who have been there and they just absolutely loved it marseille at the time was supported by Pompey down in Pompeii who was a rival to Caesar so they were like head to head I don't really know what they were producing in Marseille at the time but Narbonne had wine and it was like heavily populated it was at the time of the Caesars it was thought to have had 30,000 to 50,000 people and may have had as many as a hundred thousand people so depending on where you live that might not sound like a lot but Today, they have around 55,000 people. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's gone through a major expansion. They kind of like steadily had around 50,000 residents forever, Mm. which is interesting. It was heavily populated for the time. So I'm going to kind of just speed through a lot of this because I mean, it has it has a lot of history. But one other thing that I thought was pretty interesting is that so in 759, a Carolingian conqueror, so there was a Carolingian dynasty, which was Mm -hmm. Frankish. So it's like the Franco-Germanic people. I guess I feel like it's like still in that Gaul region, but later. Mm -hmm. So Pepin the Short, sick nickname, he... (laughs) conquered it and then it became a part of the Carolingian Visconti and he invited prominent Jewish people to that were from like Baghdad to settle there and establish a major Jewish learning center in Western Europe way back in the day when like generally Jewish people have pretty much always been persecuted and in the 12th century the court of Emingard they presided that this was where the spirit of courtly love was developed so in that Shakespearean medieval poetry the Mm -hmm. whole concept of chivalry and a woman will fall in love with a man if he courts her that apparently Mm -hmm. stemmed from there interesting yeah it's one of those things where I never think about where it was born right it just seems like it always existed but obviously it comes from somewhere like that very like romantic one person chasing after the other yeah and this really kind of surfaced I thought which was interesting kind of right around the time that this Jewish settlement was happening and there's nothing that says that that influences it at all it's just kind of like Mm -hmm. noted in all of the history that I read just in between when this Jewish settlement was invited and then in the 11th and 12th century the Jewish community built this school that played a huge role in the development of two different languages the Zarfatic and the oh this one's Shwadit S-H-U-A-D-I-T I the way I said it made it sound kind of East Indian, but Shwadi <laughs> languages. By the 12th century, their community had grown to about 2,000 people. Mm. And a Spanish Jewish astronomer, historian, and philosopher, Abraham Ibn Daud, suggested that Narbonne's importance was similar to the Exilarch of Babylon. Babylon's major religious kind of mecca, right? Huge, yeah. So I thought that that was really cool. Good for you, Narbon, for being allies to the Jewish people in a time where, like, basically everyone is shit to them. No kidding. I guess in a time, the people have always pretty much been shit to them. But I mean, for sure, thinking about current 
context too that would be a whole other podcast but, yeah um, not for us to talk about either but yeah people shit on these people historically and and currently and it's and we acknowledge that exactly and even though they were doing good things for the jewish people in this town pretty much after that in the 14th century the the town got shat on basically everything goes downhill so the Oud river the one that was like the main route from italy to spain the caesars built a dam Mm -mm. or well the romans did so nobody went through narbonne anymore they didn't need it and then also the plague Mm. that (laughs) Was that 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 did a number on pretty much everybody How about that and uh edward the black prince who edward of woodstock he was mm-hmm. the son of king edward the third of england he raided the town he kind of seemed like he was not a cool guy he like mm. inflicted a lot of cruelty upon the french during the hundred years war so fuck you guy yeah but now today if you're going to visit narbonne they have a beautiful Gothic cathedral called the Cathedral Saint-Just et Saint-Pasteur. And it began construction in 1272. And it's pretty notable because it's still unfinished. Yeah, no kidding. Hey? But that's like, it's interesting. The only, with our knowledge of our history, I think the only other cathedral that I that I know is La Sagrada Familia. That's, that's not finished. That was the, that's the one that comes to mind for me too. Yeah, because in in general, my understanding is that the construction of cathedrals was kind of of, of the utmost most importance, just considering yeah. faith and yeah, and that being paramount. And depending on the time, Pope, I think it was Pope Clement, I think the one who was like spreading Catholicism yeah. or whatever, and he would do the yeah. tours and wanted the cathedrals built so that they could house the religious depictions. Yeah. Once Renaissance painting started becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of the reason that this one's unfinished is because it's gone through so many mm-hmm. changes. It's currently situated in the heart of present day Narbonne, but when it was built, it was actually along the city wall. And this was due to the long history of that for like particular spot being a place of worship. So there was a Constantinian Basilica in that spot way back in 313, but it was ruined by a fire. And then they built on to that. And then they kind of kept building on. Mm. So the church has actually, the name of the church has changed three different times. And there will be pieces of this old architecture through all of the years. There's two Roman columns that are in the nave, but Mm. now it's the cloister. Mm. And there's a lintel of white marble in one, just one section. Mm -hmm. And then there was a cathedral built onto the side of it in 890. And that steeple is still there. And then Pope Clement IV, he had the idea to build the cathedral as it is now in 1272. Mm -hmm. So it just kept going through some revisions. Yeah, like a lot of different pieces needing to be changed and put together and different voices. I I can never remember how long it took, but the Duomo in Florence took a really long time to build because they couldn't figure out the roof. Super long time to build. I can't remember exactly, but yeah. Many years. Many, many years. Longer than one one would expect. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And then it just, just because of the roof. So it's just an open roof cathedral for like ever. I love the look of these old Gothic cathedrals though, with the flying buttresses and all the rib vaults. Mm-hmm. the Duomo Milan has like tons of those mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's something about it that reminds me a little bit of the Basilica of Saint Denis 
just like not quite as opulent in the interior like it doesn't have the beautiful blue and gold but yeah. I don't know why maybe a mix of the height and the the stained glass Saint Denis is Saint Denis is the one that shares the rat island with Notre Dame right I think so I think that's that one I think so and it's royal blue and gold inside yeah I know what you're speaking of I think it's also just the shape the like the overall arch shapes too I see yeah yeah I think we should get your dad to do an episode with us one time. He would be great at this. Especially because, you know, he knows things. He has a, a good memory for a few things. Yeah. I think where I struggle a little bit with, with architecture in general is I just find it harder to remember. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can I can look at it and I can remember I can remember that it's an important monument. Um, but it's only like the really, really famous ones. I know why. And the structures mm-hmm. of these other ones, I can't. But you then you show me a painting of anything, of any any era, and I can remember way more. I think for, I've always been so interested in architecture because I guess you just everybody has access mm-hmm. to it in a sense, right? So I mean, where we live, um, like it's a very confused identity in our mm-hmm. architecture, but there's still influences mm-hmm. of everything else, and and I like how it's so regional. I mean, no no different from food or or other art but it's just like everyone can just walk outside yeah and see you know something somebody had to design it with the idea of somebody living in it or being in it or it's serving some sort of purpose which I think is cool I think that's why you know even though I'm not really a religious person it's something that I love about cathedrals and, and churches and basilicas is that I think that they're designed in a way that I don't know it's it's, it's like it's for everyone you know you, you can walk in and experience it yeah and it's also kind of the birthplace of so much art too right so much art was it's not really born in churches yeah. but for churches when patrons of artists were mostly only buying or you know or procuring art for religious definitely I mean if you think about I remember so my very first art history class I ever took my professor Daphne she super British she would always kind of harp on the the top tier of what's most important is always history paintings which was always religion so it was like people were paying for that people wanted that that's what made you a good artist that's what got you a commission so uh definitely it's a huge piece of I think too like the the sectors of art history that I truly love like the renaissance and and the baroque and tend to be painted with that flavor yeah I'm I I mean you can't ignore the renaissance but I'm so baroque when it comes to that I mean I also really like rococo oh yeah I mean how can you not I I I think over time I love the rococo more because it's almost just like it's like making fun of everything else I love Fragonard so much but then you're a creeper <laughs> You're not even allowed to say Gauguin in my house because of how much of a creeper he was. He was a sex tourist. We don't even talk about him. Yeah. When he is on Jeopardy, I actually say he who shall not be named. Yeah. He's like responding. a huge like fetisher, like like his like major fetishes, like yeah, sex trafficker. Yeah, yeah. He's like an original sex tourist, OG sex tourist. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for naming that. I don't even know how I got it. I mean, as bad as it is, I, I 
it was old timey so I can kind of see past a little bit of Fragonard's perviness. Yeah. Because it wasn't that abnormal for a grown ass man to marry a 13 year old back in like 1500 and something. That's true. It's gross. Back then it was normal. Not yeah. that uncommon, but not cool to travel to a different place and then exploit people and also marry 13 year olds. And still be super famous to this day because you painted black and brown women. Yeah. I feel like so did Picasso. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So stylistically, Gauguin isn't for me. Yeah. Luckily, you won't see his work in churches. Never. Never. Yeah. I think for, I mean, yeah, the Renaissance is fantastic. But for what what I see in most churches, Baroque is, that's my, that's my jam. That's my church jam. Definitely. I agree with you there. I mean, I'd have to say it's hard because Titian also kind of squeaks in in that weird, what was it? Was that not, what was in between? Was it naturalism? Mm. The ones where they had like the weird long, what's the Madonna with the not long neck? Oh God. Um, oh yeah. I feel like it's naturalism or something like that. Maybe. Where it's like, no, that's not natural. That's an alien. That was a very weird phase. That's what Titian is considered, right? Wasn't he in that that group? I love a good Titian, the Venus of Urbino. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, Titian's like a great master, right? Like, a, I think exceptional. Well, and like, well, like one of the only Venetian artists oh. that I can pretty much name off the top of my head, other than I'm pretty sure Seamboy with his Madonna with the long neck. Or was that Seamboy? No, not Seamboy. Well, I don't know. I don't remember who that was. I feel like Canova. Like, like I have like pushed that one out of my mind because it's so gross. It's so weird. <laughs> I like haven't looked at that image in a very long time. <laughs> it act, like it haunts me sometimes. I think about it. Parmigianino, of course. Yeah, but I think that's the only thing Parmigianino ever did. Mannerism. Mannerism. That's it. You're right. You're right. That's what it is. The creepiest baby. Yeah, Parmigianino. It's like, this would make somebody not want to have a baby by looking at this painting. Yeah. Well, and also, what, did she spend time in Africa and have those, like, neck rings? Yeah, yeah. Like, Madonna, Circa, whatever they do that. It's really unsettling. It, and she's so white. Like, it's very alien. The, yeah, I should, but, like, the, the proportions of the baby just really... It's off-putting. It just really throws me off. That's what it looks like when I'm putting the baby to bed, actually. It's <laughs> just like arms splayed out <laughs> in all the directions. It looks like he used the um clone stamp tool in Photoshop and just like did her mm. neck twice. Yeah, it really but see that that's something that like happens naturally in people. That's not something that you would want to like immortalize. And also that like I wouldn't want somebody to be like paint my neck seams. <laughs> They're like an elephant trunk of neck seams. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone has it. I have neck seams. It's just like, why are they so prominent? Other than the church and drinking wine and hunting for aqueducts, there's also a museum of art and history in Narbonne. It's temporarily closed. I don't know if that's a COVID thing or if they're doing stuff, but it's also mm-hmm. part of the archbishop's palace. And there's a museum of archaeology mm-hmm. and then rugby. Narbonne's home to the French rugby union team, RC Narbonne, that Gerard Bertrand played for. They play at the Parc de Sports et de la... Oh, God. Too long. 
Park the, <laughs> to make it shorter. Park the sports calamity. <laughs> they were orange and black in case you want to uh, support them. And they're currently ranked fourth in the league. So of like seven. Okay. <laughs> they're okay. That's not bad. That's, that's the middle. <laughs> yeah. The beaches look nice, but not, they look not rocky like they are in other parts of France. I remember going to Nice and being like, what? Everyone just has been raving about these beaches and it's pure river rocks. I need to wear runners into the water. (laughs) So it looks like there's actual sand here, which is refreshing. Mm -hmm. And then naturally wine tours. It's 45 minutes to that Carcassonne where the hilltop town is famous for its medieval La Cite Citadel. And there Mm -hmm. are numerous watchtowers. But definitely somewhere to go for wine and, you know, stay for a little bit of history. Yeah. Some rivers. And biking with some bugs in your face. Exactly. And I mean, I think it looks beautiful too. Yeah. So. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Caitlin, for all we've got for you guys today. And have fun. Be safe. Au revoir. Bye. Bye. Bye.